0: Turning, My mother is dead, the lemons still turn yellow, the trout still stare emptily, desire is still free, we still love many people, eat peaches as if kissing.
1: Victoria Chang's poems encapsulate something that makes poetry unique among literature. They capture a fleeting moment and render it into a form that's frozen in time yet dynamic. Her work is precise, with an attention to detail at a granular level. At the same time, Chang's poetry casts a view on the larger, more universal qualities of a subject. Chang's lemons and peaches are both singular pieces of fruit, while also pointing us toward greater symbolic resonances. Impermanence and the ephemerality of material objects, including the body, are persistent themes throughout her writing. Chang's poetry deftly balances two opposing registers of scale. The micro and the macro, the particular and the universal, the individual and the collective. In Chang's poems, there's an inbuilt tension that makes them exciting, energetic, open, and present. Victoria Chang is the author of numerous volumes of poetry, including Barbie Chang, The Boss, Salvinia Molesta, and Circle. Her children's books include Is Mommy, illustrated by Marla Frazzi, and Love, Love, a middle-grade novel. She serves as program chair of Antioch's low-residency MFA program. Her most recent book of poetry, Obit, out from Copper Canyon Press, was long listed for the 2020 National Book Award and the 2021 Penn America Literary Award. It was also included... On the New York Times list of 100 notable books of 2020. We are thrilled to have Victoria on the Airlight podcast. How are you faring these days? How are you doing during <laughs> COVID and during the yeah. holidays? How, are, how have you been?
0: You know, it's. I've been fine, to be honest. I feel like I've, I've, I'm so much more privileged than so many people in this country at this moment that it's hard for me to feel anything but sorrow and empathy for other people. And so, um, and then turning it to myself, I, I, I just understand how fortunate I am um, to be alive and healthy and to have the privilege of working at home and all of those things that people have been talking about. I feel that very deeply. And uh, yeah, I'm not particularly someone that spends any time complaining or um, feeling sorry for myself. Like it's just not my personality. So I tend to be a little bit more out, outward bound to begin with. And it's been a gift in many other ways too. It's like, I don't have to sit in LA traffic for, uh, you know, two. I used to sit in the alley traffic two and a half hours, not every day, but many days during the week, and um, and I used to listen to podcasts. So, uh, but now instead of doing that, I've been writing and working on my own creative work, and so I've gained quite a bit of time back. And so I really, you know, I feel like I've been very fortunate in many ways, Um, but I've been busier than ever because of the. You know, I work at Antioch, um, and planning these ten-day online residencies requir- has required an enormous amount of work. And so, um, yeah, it's been a mixed bag. You know, I think I think in in all all things considered, I feel again I feel lucky, and I feel um, sad for a lot of other people.
1: Right. Yeah. No. Well, I'm glad that things are going well for 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 you during this time, and that is that is interesting that there is often that disconnect between one's personal experience and then. How you're the
0: collective,
1: the, the collective, right, right.
0: And your experience is not always going to be aligned with the collective, or at all in many cases, and, um, and the collective might be something that you may be aligned with, but you may at times disagree with, you know, it, it's not this sort of easy, one to one relationship um, between the personal and the collective and how you identify, etc, you know, and so I think it's all very nuanced and interesting to to think about.
1: Right. It, it is something of a, of a, I mean, for me, at least a mind puzzle of kind of being like, okay, I'm doing okay myself, but I know cogni like I'm cognizant of the extreme suffering that's going on outside in the collective, but how, that's do you, right. how do you balance both of those, those things at once?
0: Well, you have guilt is what you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I mean, it, many times in my life I've ex- had extreme misfortune or misfortune. disfortune is not a word, um, misfortune. And then it's, you know, and other times, um, my, my life has been very privileged, you know, and I've, I've had to have a lot of empathy for other people and an enormous amount of collective guilt. and. Um, you know, as a as a woman, as a BIPOC person, you know, it's like, there are all sorts of different feelings. But I think that's the beauty of it. You know, it's like, we are multitudes, after all, You know, <laughs> and we're not easily kind of put into a small box at any point in time. So I'd hope that we were thinking about things in a nuanced manner. I think we've lost that quite a bit over the last four years, um, and probably longer. And so I hope that we could Go back to being a little more nuanced in our thinking about everything. Frankly,
1: yeah, this is not going to be remembered as a as a year of nuance. That's right. <laughs> but the reason I was bringing up COVID or asking you about that, aside from wanting to generally know how you're doing, um, but I, I also, you know, because I was reading, I was reading uh, your 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 last book, Obit, recently, and it just struck me as, I mean, I obviously it's dealing with very personal circumstances, but I. I felt like it took on new resonances in this moment of many people experiencing loss all of a sudden. Yeah. So I don't know if that is that something that you thought about or people had, had had asked you about?
0: It seems very sort of timely, as other people have said. And i thought about this too when people talk about it in reviews and things like that, is that I live in a state of grief. That's just my personality, (laughs) being a poet, and also live in the throes of kind of constantly contemplating existentialism and one's purpose here and the shortness of our time here and death and grief and always and loss. You know, I think those are the states of in which my mind naturally works and has worked for a long time because you know my parents have been sick for so long. And I think naturally poets can be that way anyway. So for me, it's like, this has always been how I think. But while I was writing that book, there wasn't a moment where I didn't ask myself who the heck would care about my own losses. So it was very sort of important for me to think about that in the process of writing. So the book was never about me. It was never a, a memoir. It was never just a, a, a group of linked stories of my own personal experiences. Not once. Um, the project was always much larger. You know, it was always this idea and question of language and whether language can, at the end of the day, articulate the human conditions and feelings that we we all live through and feel on a daily basis. Thinking about it in retrospect, it was always about that sort of slipperiness of. Of language and that that gap you know so the, sp- the space that I was writing into was that gap, and knowing that I would never reach that place of being able to fully connect with how I felt through language, and so I always had that in mind, but you know then the pandemic came, and then the grief sort of took on a larger collective sort of thing that, that the book was. Naturally addressing, because the book was never really about the loss of my mother or the loss of my father's language anyway it was about all of our losses on a daily basis in the time that I started talking to you we've lost so much already you know time is continuously moving, and by the end of the day we've lost so much, but we've also gained a lot you know and so this kind of tension between the gaining and the losing is is a part of our existence here, and that I think is sort of I think looking back at it, those are some of the larger things that I was kind of grappling with.
1: There's something in the book very, to be uh, philosophical for a moment, something Wittgensteinian about it, mm-hmm. where the limits of my language are the limits of my world, and mm-hmm. especially in the sense in which you're describing your your father's uh, I'm I'm sorry. What 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 is, is it? Dementia that he has, or
0: yeah, no, and yeah, yeah. So he had he had a stroke, and so yes. his his like frontal lobe um, dementia, which is different than Alzheimer's. But he probably also has Alzheimer's too. It's like which is more of a gradually lo- gradual loss of memory and things like that. But he had a pretty catastrophic event in which he lost so much, and then he fell a couple more times, and then just got worse and worse. And now who knows? I mean, he doesn't. It just gets worse, and so it could just be aging and Alzheimer's, but. He was in his sixties when he had his first stroke. And then um, and now it's just, you know, he's so old, it's kind of like if he has anything, it's fine. <laughs> you know?
1: My my grandmother had uh had Alzheimer's when she passed. And so and I remember that as being very difficult because you do see the death of the person well before their physical body, their physical person gives out. So that right. that that section of the book really hit home, but it, it was, but it did strike me about the way, the limits of language, the limits mm-hmm. of how that shapes our world, shapes mm-hmm. ourselves. But I'm wondering if you're seeing that gap between what language can represent and what is real or what is out there. Is that something that's playing out in this moment of collective mourning?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it is in many ways because at the end of the day, I mean, to me what are we but alone and we we are born alone we 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 die alone you know in our lives we we try and create this collective you know we create these smaller units of family or friends or everything is about this grouping and collect collective right and you, know, you think about college you go to a college within the college you join these clubs you know um these sororities and fraternities these you know classes are a form of sort of unit 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 bound groupings so i think humans are just very group and collective oriented but at the end of the day i never really think that we are able to truly connect to anyone but ourselves, because no one really knows you, but yourself. And there's so many secrets that we all keep and hold and language is completely inadequate. And having that connection, just go out to dinner with someone and how much do you miss? And you're just talking, but like, like you're trying to connect, but how much have you really connected, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I guess I've never really consciously thought about that before, but now that I'm talking with you, I think that sort of drives my my thinking about one's life and existentialism. And if that's kind of how I think, then I, I have to come to peace with that, that we all sort of are born alone, we live alone, and we die alone. And if that's what I think, and I'm leaning towards, then how do you reconcile that? And how does language play into that? How does writing play into that?
1: Is language in writing, are they things that That help us connect, or do they simply kind of reiterate that lack of connection?
0: I think we try, we try our best to use language to have connections with people. You know, like like I I really think reading is a selfish act, and I think that people aren't reading for the author. You know, it's like they're 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 reading to get something out of something, and and they're reading for that connection, you know, with something whatever that might be. And I think, well, what are writers doing? Writers, what what are we doing? Are we writing for other people? Or are we writing for ourselves and trying to under, trying to figure out and close that gap through language? The human being is very motivated by the individual and the self, and I think that drives everything. Does that mean we don't care about the collective? But no, I think the collective is ter- like pr- tertiary at best. You know, <laughs> um, and maybe that's being too cynical. But the older I get, and and you know, the more I sort of see, I see that when someone's dying, it's like, there aren't a lot of people that hang around. It's just not a pretty process. And so who's going to be there for you? And, you know, even when my mom was dying, I couldn't fully be there for her. She, she said, I didn't understand. She claimed I didn't understand and she wasn't wrong. You know? And I, and I, in at some moments, many moments, I didn't care about that, her process because it was too hard or, I had other things to do. I had too much living I had to do. I had to help my kids grow, and uh, that involved, you know, what they were going to eat for breakfast. And so I, it's like I had to not care about her dying all the time in order to survive. And so I think that it's very fascinating to to live through all these tensions and then to come out of it thinking, oh, maybe none of us really do care, (laughs) you know, in the end, or we care a little bit, or we care some, but it's certainly not more than we care about ourselves. And that was sort of something that i've been kind of thinking about in my own life as time goes on which is actually a great way to be because then you don't care about anything <laughs> <laughs> so so when people do things or say things or criticize or whatever or you know like in the literary world it's like if you don't get this or you do get that or if you don't win that or if you it's like i really don't care i just don't care because it's like none of that matters to me at all it's not like you, You win something, and suddenly you're the this like like people suddenly care about you. If you win something, people hate you more. So it's better just to kind of be happy with your whatever you're doing, which is writing and and uh, the joys that you experience for yourself.
1: Right. Yeah. I think this sounds like something I've I've heard in therapy about setting up strong boundaries for yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't go to therapy, but you know, I'm sure I I should.
1: Everybody should go to therapy. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree.
0: Daily, if possible.
1: <laughs> oh, man. I, n- never enough. Never enough therapy. <laughs> I'm curious just what were the influences for this and what you've been reading lately. I mean, because when I was reading Obit, I kept thinking of uh, Reznikov and his te- and testimony and Holocaust. And I know it's, it's quite different because you're not really dealing with found text, but there is a way of trying to create these... These kind of objective formal pieces. It felt very objectivist in a way.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I mean, I think it is. It is very objectivist, and it was intentionally so. You know, and it's kind of related to all the things that I was talking about be- before. Um, philosophy. I mean, I'm not a philosopher, and I always thought if I could major in something else that wasn't what I majored in and what I studied, it'd be philosophy. Um, And it's because I'm I'm endlessly fascinated, Um, I'm interested in literary criticism and philosophy. And so I try and read as much as I I can. And I think that's sort of where my mind lands or naturally sits, you know, it's like, it's this idea of um, when you're writing about the self, you're actually standing 10 feet away, looking at the self, you know, it's, you're not really a part of your own writing experience. And so in terms of what I was reading, I always have books everywhere. And so when I first started writing, I used to write, I used to have more books around. And then like I'd inadvertently start sounding like other people, which is kind of how they teach you how to write, right? Um, in, in MFA programs and how to paint. and But then after a while, I think maybe after my second book, was done, I, I thought to myself, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore, because, you know, there's too much, there's too much of a chance to be too influenced by X, Y, or Z writer. And and then also on top of it, I kind of always known that my personality and my artistic sort of vision may be sort of um, different than other people's. And, and so I decided to embrace that. And so I think starting with my third book, um, The Boss, and then subsequently, it's like, I try really hard not to have anything around? You know, I read a lot for sure, but when I'm writing, it's kind of like I'm just doing my own thing. But yeah, I mean, I there are writers that I love, and and they're, but they're usually you know older or dead. Um, I really like Wolf, Virginia Wolf, and The Waves is something that I always think about. Um, I like Joy Graham's poetry because it's sort of. You know, I always describe it as being like a drone, you know, it's like she can go up into the air and and then come down to to like this little droplet on a leaf. And I think I'm that kind of person. Like I feel like not to compare myself to Jory Graham, the great Jory Graham, <laughs> but I, I you know, I have that kind of flexibility in mind, I think that I admire in in certain kinds of of writers. You know, you can be navel gazing, but you can also lift that camera out of the forest and look out into the world. And I think that's what appeals to me about her poems. I also really love um, Tomas Transtromer. is someone I've always really enjoyed reading. Rolka, Merwin, Bishop, like a lot of those kind of poets I grew up reading. And now it's like, I just read a lot of new books because I just get them a lot for interviews or reviews or things like that and they're all over the place (laughs) you know like just looking around here there's so many but in terms of people that have really influenced me I guess I try not to be influenced too much by anyone because I I, you know I I made that mistake early on when I first started writing and and I don't want to do that anymore like I have my own ideas and my own vision and so I just want to do my own thing
1: what have you been reading lately like what's in the new book pile
0: the new book pile. I, I just got Just Us by Claudia Rankin and I, I started flipping through it. I haven't actually read anything yet. What else am I reading right now? Oh, I, I got this anthology. It's called The Pandemic Files from the Yale Review. And I'm, I can't wait to start reading those, both the prose and the poetry. I usually start with the poetry and then I, then I dig my way around into the prose. Um, I was rereading, actually, Alphabet uh, by Inger Christ. Christensen. And I want to get the Ingers book of essays, because I really love reading essays. So yeah, I think I'm reading, I'm always reading a lot, trying to keep up with all the new stuff that's coming out. But mostly, I need to find time to to write and to finish some stuff that I'm working on that is that actually is due soon. So I imagine. So yeah.
1: Well, well speaking of new things, uh, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the poems that we put we published in Airlight. I mean, yeah. They they seem they seem clearly thematically related to the work in Obit. I don't know if they were written at the same time, if they're from that era, if they're newer, but they they seem certainly seem of a piece.
0: Yeah, they're an extension. I think all my books sort of works are an extension of whatever I was working on before, because books are you know I always say they're arbitrarily human made, and so you know, Obed is very, it was, it was kind of circling around one sort of subject, you know, which is gr- grief and, and existentialism and dying and that. And so, you know, I knew that whatever I started writing poems later, after that, I I didn't want to circle around any subject. And so that was very conscious, And but I didn't know when I was going to start writing anything. I certainly didn't plan on writing anything and I don't usually plan on anything. It's just sort of you just sit down one day and suddenly you feel like doing something. But these little poems, I've always been really intrigued by little poems. And've I've truly honestly never found a collection of little poems that I've really loved. And so it's always been in the back of my head to like try some, you know, writing a collection of little poems. And then my friend Ilya Kaminsky, said, Hey, you know, you, 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 you seem like you, you enjoy writing little poems. And I think your little poems in obit were really good. You should write um, a little book of little poems, 40 pages. And, you know, this was like sandwiched in between about a hundred other um, suggestions that he gives me. Cause we have this great, we'd have these great conversations where he's kind of an innovative thinker. And I, I, I think I really like those people. And so we're, we always like, he's like, how about this? How about that? How about this? And I'm like, how about that? How about this? And so our conversations are very vibrant. And it was just one little thing that he said that, and then it was, we moved on to the next 12 subjects. Right. But that idea kind of hooked in me and I thought, all right, he gave me a challenge. Can I do this? Can I write? you know, little poems and and I thought, maybe I'll try that. But then I thought, oh, but you know, I, I circled around one theme so deeply last time. Maybe this time I'll try purposely and intentionally not to circle around any themes. And in fact, I'm going to write about nothing. And so that became sort of the goal, which is to write about nothing. Dusk and winter. Everything is blue. If we mend dusk, then morning may never arrive. At this time of day, It's hard to tell the difference between a rook and a star. Snow melts on the rook's leg. A poem is the rook's leg only after touching snow. And so then I just started writing these little poems, but to write about nothing, I thought I'd give myself a little writing exercise, you know, as a teacher and an educator, that's what we do. And I never follow them and I never do them, but I thought I'm going to give myself one, but I like giving myself writing exercises. The one I thought was, I noticed that W.S. Merwin's um, poem titles are all kind of general. And uh, so let me just use some of those. And so I basically used his titles as prompts (laughs) and then then explored some new syllabic forms. And so they're all syllabics and they're various combinations of different syllabics. And they're very specific patterns in in each one that then again, so there are two things that were pressing against me to basically force me to get out of my own way and force subject matter to get out of the way. Like I had to kind of be a little more iron fisted about giving myself those constraints. And then I wrote, I think I wrote like maybe almost 200 of these little poems. And I put two on a page because it seemed like they wanted to have two on a page to sort of speak to each other. And that's it. (laughs) Were the uh,
1: syllabic forms, were these of your own devising or are they traditional forms? Yeah,
0: no, they're traditional forms. So like I wrote tankas um, starting out in obit. And then I just did some research and explored a whole bunch of other syllabic forms. And the cool thing about being a a writer in America is like, you can come up with your own ideas. You could make up cool ideas like Jericho Brown's duplex, you know, you could bring ideas over you know, like the, the huzzles, you can make things and then, and then people start to get excited about them. And they, you start seeing more and more, like I've seen more tankas in the world and it's not, you know, because of me necessarily, but Harriet Mullen wrote tankas. you know, it's like, it's, it's all of us kind of doing this. And I've seen a ton of high bends around and the stuff that I'm bringing into this new manuscript, it's like, I'm kind of hoping that other people will, will explore some of these other things too, for fun. Cause I really had a lot of fun writing them. So you're
1: trying to write about nothing. What did you find yourself writing about in all of these poems? Like, did, <laughs> themes, did themes emerge?
0: <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You'd have to read it and, t- and tell me. Like, I'm sure they did. But like, there are a whole bunch of things like that were just like, you know, just me looking out the window <laughs> at a lemon on a plant and um, and like not feeling pressure to to write about anything like the lemon didn't have to be a metaphor for something or, and if it were, it was fine, you know? So it was kind of like, and then also like not, you know, they're so small. You have such little space. You have no room for narrative. So it's like very tiny. It's such compression of language. It really is. It becomes like a tonal thing, you know, and I haven't even thought through this enough since I haven't actually talked to anyone about these poems yet. And, um, and they haven't really made their, their way into the world fully yet. And they probably will in the next year in in terms of um, literary journals and things like that. but I haven't had a chance to sort of fully think through what happens when you're writing such compressed poems, except that you have very few things at at your fingertips. and so what does the poem end up doing, and what's the result of the poem? I think it's actually um for me, it was all about mystery. There are so many different ways to read these tiny poems, and they could mean so many different things, and so I think like being really comfortable with that leap and those open, that open text, you know, kind of idea that I'm really interested in and I want to write talk on, you know, the idea of an open text versus like a closed text. And, and I think that writing these small poems really can lead to that kind of open text, kind of almost paradoxically. You might think, I mean, not I didn't, but you might think that writing these, you have to focus even more, you know, but it's actually the opposite. That they're tiny, but they are large. And so um, the largeness of them is, is what I think what ultimately appeals to me.
1: Right. Yeah. There's a sort of, they also remind me, reminded me and what you were saying about the compression of language is, is really great. And it, in that sense, it reminded me imagist poetry.
0: And Absolutely. You know, Some like early,
1: <laughs> early pound uh, to use.
0: Absolutely. A, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's kind of, Early pound in the sort of time period of the images was when some of the Japanese forms came to be in America. You know, I think that's probably where it started. Um, and so I think I, I, I just haven't seen that in a whole book. You know, <laughs> I, I just haven't. And and uh, Robert Haas has edited. That book on haiku, but I don't particularly like the haiku. It feels too compressed to me. Um, there are just not enough syllables for me as a writer. <laughs> I need just a few more. So um I did five, seven, seven, you know, I I, you know, as the shortest. And then um, I also explored like uh, another form that I, I I you could pick the number of lines. I picked nine. And I explained this in the back of the, the manuscript as well of which ones I chose and why and what happened and how I worked with the titles. And so, I mean, it was very much so an experimentalist kind of project. It was just making art for the sake of making art. You know, there's really nothing more than that. I enjoyed it, doing it as a process. Thanks. Some days I can't see beyond the two small lemons as they pull down the branches. It's the only view I have. It's all, when I look out the window, I see a half, a quarter of that small lemon tree and then most of my time, my windows, like over here in this particular space, the, the curtains are closed. But if I do open them, I only see a tiny, another tree, maybe, a, you know, a small fraction of it. And I see some sky. And so I actually, right. And if I lean forward, I see someone's backyard and there's, you know, so I think that the one, the girl, there's a girl that comes back, appeared in, in one of these palms. And so I don't see much, but, but boy, do I see a lot in that tiny little vertical sliver. I see so much. And all of that stuff has appeared in these poems. Cause again, there's nothing like it's writing about nothing. And so it's like just looking around and that's, that's the only sliver I have, but what, like I have written so much about this tiny, like one foot by eight foot sliver that I can see right now. So much is there in these poems and so many of my other poems too.
1: Okay, so I wanna try this, maybe this exercise will go nowhere, but you were, you were saying that the lemon could be a metaphor or not. What does the lemon mean to you?
0: Who the hell knows? I mean, um, and yeah, I'm looking at one of my poems that you all published. It's, you know, some days I can't see beyond the two small lemons as they pull down the branches. Um, maybe in that particular poem, it's the limitations of, of sight, of perspective. I don't know. I'm making things up at this point. But, you know, it's like it is literally the limitation of the view that I have. It's so limiting. It's tiny, tiny, tiny sliver and I I could open up all these windows and see so much more. But, you know, I like to write with very limited external views. Um even though I think that's a bad thing. Like I know people like to go outside and write and things like that. I just like to hold myself up and shine a tiny little light lamp on a white page and and write that way. And so I don't know. Maybe it's this idea of constraining myself. You know, I can like to constrain myself with f- formally in palms. Maybe I like to constrain myself physically in space as well. I love writing in cars. And I think that maybe there's in that process of limitation, there's an expansion of imagination for me. You know, it's like, if I don't have much to look at, then there's a lot that happens in my head.
1: The hour is running late, but I, I want to ask too about how, um, cause you know, you're you're uh, an educator and a teacher and you were talking about your classes at Antioch so i was just wondering how teaching's going and how especially during during covid and i i'm i'm, I'm especially curious because you know as a teacher myself I just want to know how everybody else is doing with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do a lot more administrating at Antioch um, than I do teaching these days because the program had so many things that needed to, to be fixed kind of thing. And so a lot of my work is administrative there. I mean, almost all of it. And then I'll take on students once in a while, but I do a lot of teaching you know, and lots of other venues too. I think people are doing as well as you can expect them to be doing. I mean, I think also it varies. I think some people love online learning. I think it suits them. I think they're less distracted. I think some people really hate online learning and they need to be around people. So I really think it's dependent on the individual. I mean, for me, when I teach, you know, workshops or things like that, it doesn't feel all that different. Um, I, I think that actually i prefer it in some ways because it seems like it kind of can shave down some of the rougher edges that some people bring into the classroom. And so the like if you have any problematic behavior or, or or issues, it seems like those people pull back just a little bit when they're online. And I think that is something I've noticed across the board and I've heard this too as a, you know, workshop leader or a um as a facilitator, not a leader. You're never really leading anything. Um, As a workshop facilitator and a teacher or someone, an administrator, I've really appreciated the online learning seems to sort of of make people think a little more perhaps uh, or hesitate a little more somehow about behaving in certain ways that could be problematic in terms of the, the group. I don't know if that's been your experience, but that's been my experience
1: yeah I, I I think so too i mean I've enjoyed online teaching and I've noticed that <laughs> students i think there's i mean the ones who want to check out can kind of just check out completely which is right there's
0: that component of checking out which is a problem for sure yeah
1: but but it is almost it is almost like better in a certain way because then they don't they che- they're checking out doesn't really bother other pe- other people. That's right, so. <laughs> and we give
0: them the right we give them the right to check out. I mean, we should at least I'd hope. It's like if you feel like you need to do X Y or Z, go do it. You know, and so I think, I think everything just feels more flex, and I feel like it's it should be that way. You know, I mean, I've never really thought grades were that important anyway. You know, and so it's like. And as someone who never participated in workshop and was never said a word in most of the classes I've ever been in, you know, I would have appreciated, you know, not having the pressure of of having to say something or being called on or et cetera, you know. And I talk all the time now, unwillingly, but I think I think that I was a different kind of student and a forgotten kind of student. And I think that this environment gives would have given me the freedom to be who I was and how I wanted to be without forcing me to be more white, you know, more American, more, you know, whatever people were trying to make me, I didn't feel comfortable that way. And so I think this kind of learning environment allows people just to be more like, I'm me, this is me, and everyone's okay with it. And that's fine.
1: I'm curious what you're if you're still writing little poems, if you're still if you're working on something new.
0: Yeah, no, I'm working on. All, I have two things right now. So I'm trying to, you know, finish the little poems, even though, they're slotted to come out in 2022. And so I know that that I need to turn that in pretty soon. So I've been working really hard on those. And then in the book of Little <clears throat> Little Poems, there's also some other poems in the middle. So I actually at this particular moment, just this morning, I've been trying to f- fix some of those and add a few more that from my notebook. And then and then there's another book that I'm working on, which is a book of essays memoir something prose it's prose and um, but it's still very lyrical um prose and uh that is coming out next year and so that is something i've been frantically working on since august because i didn't realize it was coming out next year until recently and so um that has some visual components and other things, you know, that I'm not super experienced in, but I felt like I wanted to try. And so I've just been working on those and then these little poems. And that's pretty much what I've got to work on both of those um, for the next, you know, couple months. And I feel lucky because most of the time when I'm writing, it's like, you know, my whole life has been like, Will anyone publish any of these? Probably not. You know, nobody's gonna take this book. It's so weird, you know. And and so you're always just writing into a vacuum and into a void. But it's actually kind of fun for the first time to actually be writing and then knowing, okay, this one's gonna come out in 2022. This one's gonna come out next year. And to actually not have that kind of pressure—is anyone ever gonna read these? In mo- most of my life, it's been nah, probably not. That's been a different kind of writing process. And the writing process. Now it doesn't change the actual writing, but it just feels a little bit less depressing. You know? <laughs> because, you know, people ask you, you have to ask yourself, is, what are you writing for? Well, some people believe that if there's no reader, even if it's one reader, then the writing isn't finished, right? It's not completed some sort of cycle of its own kind of existential life of the word. I'm not sure I believe that because I've written a whole bunch of things that nobody's ever read that I'm totally fine and happy with and I'm happy about the process, and I really enjoyed it. So I don't, like, there's a lot of stuff that I don't, like, I don't need to publish everything I write. So for me, but it, that's important to 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 state, but it is a different feeling. if I'm working on these couple of things that I do actually want to get onto the world, and then to have them already be slotted is a whole new thing for me. <laughs> it's a really nice feeling, because it's like, you know, it's really difficult to it's been it's difficult, you know. Getting things out in the world is hard and it's not been easy for me at all. So it's it's a it's a different feeling. I can focus more on the writing and not get so distracted.
1: And it also kind of brings us full circle to, you know, we were talking at the beginning of this about can writing even communicate with someone else? Mm-hmm. So is that is having a reader necessarily the the end result of the act of writing? Mm-hmm. Does that mm-hmm. do you need that at all? And I suppose there's you know, as you were saying, a lot of your writing is dealing with that gap of maybe you do, maybe you don't. And it's yeah. here, here you are again. Maybe <laughs> you that. do,
0: maybe you don't. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, that's why I don't value publishing as much as I think that, um, our, our sort of capitalistic society would like us to, um, because the, I have written a lot of stuff, a ton of stuff that is just, you know, I've never even sent out, um, And I've loved every second of that, you know, like that process of writing. And it wasn't a decision I made at the beginning, or it's just, I just, you know, it's like, it's just like this intuitive feeling. It's like, well, I don't really want, I don't feel like I want to share this for whatever reason. That's the beauty of the writer. Like the writer has freedom, you know? And I think that we're in this sort of capitalistic um, production cycle of, in life of this literary world that we all kind of get trapped in, you know, this cycle of, publication and prize seeking and accolades. And it's like, well, I always tell my students like, Hey, you know, very few people get to experience that. And so you better like writing (laughs) (laughs) because, because your chances of getting those things that you may think you want um, are very slim. You better remind yourself every day why you picked up that first pencil pen or tapped on the keyboard and ask yourself that question every single day. Cause I do you know, and I can, to this day, having written, been writing for 25, my whole life, essentially, I can honestly say it's, it brings me such joy to sit down and write every single time I get to do it. And if I hadn't even been able to publish anything, I guarantee you, I would still say that I I feel that down to the core. And some people might say, oh, it's easy for you to say, no, it's not actually, you know, I, I haven't had an easy path at all. And again, there are so many things that I have in my computer that I've never shown anyone. And that makes me smile because it's like, well, I love writing. You know, I could just write a ton of stuff and be joyful about it. But we do get trapped, you know, in this culture of like, you must show something to someone. I was like, must you, though? You know, do you have to? Well, sometimes maybe for certain projects, maybe. And the other ones you hold closer to your chest, you know.
1: That, that is really True. If you are writing for, if you are writing for others to to get others to like you or get accolades or any sort of recognition, you're probably
0: going to be disappointed. Screwed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Screwed. Yeah, for sure. To be the last drop of rain each night is sadness. It shuts the last door and jumps.